0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled, Optimizing the Care and Quality of Life for Patients with ADPKD, Part 3, Management, is jointly provided by Access Medical Education and Novus Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements
1: as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and uh, welcome to this uh, webcast titled uh, Optimizing the Care for Patients with ADPKD. This is uh, part uh, three of four in CME series on improving the care and quality of life for patients suffering from autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease or ADPKD. In this webcast, we'll talk about disease state management. I'm uh, Dr. Frederick Robarioscui, I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University. And I'm uh, joined today by my colleague, Dr. Michelle chanchol uh, from the University of Colorado. Uh, Dr. Chanchol, uh, would you please uh, introduce yourself?
0: Thank you, Fred. Um, it's an honor to be doing uh, uh, this webcast with you. And as you, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and uh, with expertise in BKD research and clinical care of BKD patients.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, the um, objectives of uh, this uh, webcast are to review the general management of ADPKD regarding particularly blood pressure, cholesterol control, and uh, dietary interventions, apply current uh, guidelines for initiation and management of tolvaptan in rapid progressors, and uh, also summarize the dietary modifications that have shown benefit in ADPKD. As uh, um, the research over the last uh, 40 years pretty much has uh, shown uh, there's a number of uh, interventions that we can work on and uh, strategies that we can actually optimize the care of the uh, the PKD patients. Uh, the uh, number one and uh, most important uh, uh, point is hypertension. We know that the prevalence of hypertension is uh, very high in PKD. Uh, at the time of diagnosis of PKD, for whatever reason, you know, either routine screening or a problem, about 40 to 60% of PKD patients already have hypertension. If you look at the pediatric population, up to 20% uh, based on the series actually report that even kids with PKD already have abnormal blood pressure readings. If you look at the uh, end of life of PKD patients, the lifetime risk is almost about 90%. The 10% of people with PKD who don't develop hypertension typically do very well, and their kidney progression is not that bad. Um, so this is clearly a, the most preventable and treatable risk factor for progression. We have uh, several strategies and uh, medications to choose from, and um, uh, we always recommend the angiotensin uh, system blockers. Uh, because there's an intrarenal activation of the this system uh, that occurs very early in PKD, uh, therefore uh, agents such as ACE inhibitors and ARBs uh, should be considered as first line drugs. Because the salt intake is typically high in our diet in the United States, uh, diuretics are second line uh, recommended for uh, management of blood pressure, and third line is beta blockers, and the fourth line. Uh, calcium channel blockers should be uh, kept to the last line. And the reason for that is a defective calcium trafficking issue that is caused by polycystin defect and mutation in PKD mimics the uh, effect of the calcium channel blockers. So obviously, if we can manage blood pressure with something else, we should choose the other agents first. And if we still have a high blood pressure and that's not controlled, then we should uh, come down to using calcium channel blockers. Um, I would ask you, uh, Michelle, as far as the uh, blood pressure goals uh, based on the whole PKD trial, uh, what is your uh, uh, guidelines and management uh, uh, strategies that you have as far as what is a good blood pressure goal in PKD patients? Yeah
0: thank you, Fred. First of all, I, want, I really enjoy your initial slide where you touch on all the key, clinical aspects that the clinicians should be aware in the management of patients with polycystic kidney disease. And as you mentioned, hypertension is, is honestly a, a key clinical parameter that needs to be in control in this patient population. As you mentioned, both of our centers were part of the HAL PKD trials, and we have a lot of expertise with the management of blood pressure in this patient population. And you are very well aware that there were two studies where they look at blood pressure control in those patients with a GFR greater than 60, as well as patients with true CKD they find us at GFR less or equal than 60. And in that patient population with um, normal or near normal kidney function, I do agree that blood pressure should be less than 110 over 75. As the late Dr. Bob Schreier used to say, who actually was the principal investigator from the HAL study the lower, the better. And for patients with a GFR less than 60 and with more progressive renal disease, also agree with you in the basis of the HAL study and actually the SPRINT study, even though it did not include patients with polycystic kidney disease, that the systolic blood pressure should be below 130 towards closer to 120 as much as possible.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Michelle. Um, Now we're uh, moving to the... uh, uh, V2 receptor antagonists, and uh, tolvaptin is the only agent of the class that has a label for polycystic kidney disease. Uh, so, a series of uh, uh, clinical trials actually led to the science that's behind the effectiveness and safety of tolvaptin. And finally, in the United States, it was approved in April of 2018. Uh, the two trials, TEMPO and Reprise, basically showed very similar uh, effects. And they have a radical uh, protective effect on the uh, kidney function in about thir- by, by a 31% lower annual rate of decline in GFR. If you compare that to the gold standard that we've had prior to that, which was basically using ARBs or ACE inhibitors, if you take a comparison point that ARBs in diabetic nephropathy, that benefit was only about 15.2% in annual rate of decline of GFR. And uh, this is really uh, clearly uh, superior to that protection. Uh, I would like to ask Michelle just to very quickly go over the, uh, the two seminal trials, the TEMPO3-4 and the REPRISE trial, uh, to see what was different between the two trials and uh, how did we conduct these trials and what did we see after that as far as results.
0: Thanks, friend. I agree that Tolbatan has really added to our armamentarium of uh, how to deal and treat uh, patients with polycystic kidney disease. As you mentioned, there were two key trials in the Tolbatan program, uh, the TEMPO 3-4, as well as the REPRISE. Uh, both of them a uh, very large population, over a thousand patients uh, with polycystic kidney disease. Uh, the timeframe of uh, is the TEMPO was an earlier study between 2010 to 2013, and the REPRISE somewhat later between uh, 2015 to uh, 2017. Uh, The REPRISE included patients all the way to 64, uh, and TEMPO was mainly 18 to 50. But the big difference to your point is that TEMPO included patients with GFR greater than 60, and the REPRISE had patients with GFRs between 45 to 65 and 25 to 44. So in other words, patients with more advanced chronic kidney disease. Um, there's no question that um, another big difference between those two studies in, in the tempo, they look at total kidney volume um, requirement to be in the study and actually changes in total kidney volume was an endpoint. And that was not the case in REPRISE. REPRISE really the main primary outcome was changing in GFR in contrary to total kidney volume, So those, I think, I, I, I think that focusing on the inclusion criteria, as well as the outcomes, were kind of the main key differences between TEMPO 3.4 and reprise.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, these are basically the uh, graphs uh, from New England Journal of Medicine. Um, the TEMPO 3, four results uh, on the left side basically showed a net uh, almost one2 milliliter per minute of kidney protection per year of usage and exposure to tolvaptan, in tempo, And uh, as far as the total kidney volume, uh, patients who are on uh, placebo, they had about 5.5% increase in the total kidney volume per year versus 2.8 for the patients who are on tolvaptan. Obviously, in reprise, we did not have a TKV endpoint. We only had a GFR endpoint, and the GFR endpoint was extremely close to what we were were seeing in tempo, and it was basically uh, paralleling and mimicking exactly those results. So, the two trials were complementary, uh, but very consistent with each other, and that's basically what gave birth to uh, the, the science behind the regulatory approvals in um, all the countries that actually tolvaptan became available in. There are uh, models uh, to extrapolate the effect of uh, 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 Tolvaptin on uh, on kidney function and the, uh, the onset of end-stage renal disease or dialysis or transplantation. Uh, we assume that the earlier you start and the higher the GFR is, the more you're going to get actually a benefit of postponing dialysis. Based on tempo, we think that if you start 12 aptin around the GFR of 90, you could actually postpone dialysis by seven and a half years almost, versus if you started at 30 of GFR, you would only have about one and a half years of difference in the onset of ESRD. So the sooner, the better. The reprise had very similar uh, projections and extrapolations, if you start at around 60, you're gaining about 6, 6.8 years time of uh, onset of dialysis. Or uh, if you start at 30, you're only uh, reaching about 2.3 years. So again, the sooner, the better, um, and the higher the GFR, the better as far as the protection that you're getting from, uh, from Tolvapten. And I'm going to ask uh, Michelle now, as far as the, uh, for any drug, you know, you have risks and benefits, and uh, I, w- I would like him to basically summarize what are the benefits and what are the risks of considering Tolvapta?
0: Yeah. no thanks, Fred. I wanted to make a comment on your previous slide that although when we see the data from the clinical trials, maybe the differences don't appear tremendously clinically significant, it's important to remind the clinician that these are additive. And these extrapolations are really bringing the point that Uh, These benefits add through the years, and potentially we can significantly delay progression to end-stage kidney disease in patients with polycystic kidney disease. Regarding the risk-benefit ratio, you're absolutely right. I mean, like any drug, uh, I mean, what Tolbatin has been proven to show is that it slows kidney growth, it slows EGFR or kidney function decline, it will delay the need for kidney replacement therapy. Very important for us to uh, keep in mind, it reduces pain hematuria, kidney stone, as well as urinary tract infection events. And it may even have uh, an effect on blood pressure reduction. Nonetheless, it does have some side effects like polyuria and nocturia. It does increase thirst and fatigue. Uh, It has been shown to elevate uric acid, and it may be at times associated with gout. Um, One of the harms that people are most concerned is about this elevation of transaminase, and the risk of severe hepatocellular toxicity or liver failure. Nonetheless, this is the reason why these patients need very frequent monitoring of liver function, may have some possible drug interactions, and there's no question that the drug is expensive and it may create some financial burden. However, it's been the coverage of the Tolvap and at least here in Colorado has improved significantly since it was launched by the, by, um, uh, out in the community.
1: The next topic is uh, really kidney stones that uh, could happen in about 20% of PKD patients over their life uh, lifespan. Um, what is atypical with PKD is that most people with PKD actually would make uric acid stones, which is kind of contrary to the, the garden variety uh, calcium oxalate stones that non-PKD patients will have. Um, there is uh, clearly uh, uh, an issue with hypocitraturia, so the citrate level. In the urine are lower in PKD patients, and um, uh, the stone former typically, you know, have hypocalciuria. Therefore, the treatment includes, you know, what we recommend typically to all stone formers: uh, drinking plenty of fluid, at least three liters of, uh, of water a day, a low salt diet, alkalinizing the urine if your uric acid stones are present, and also supplementing uh, uh, the diet with citrate and uh, citrate tablets. Uh, and if we, if we have a kidney stone that's stuck in the kidney, you know, we can consider lithotripsy and take them out uh, to avoid, you know, obstruction issues and pain issues. Um, the other topic is the urinary tract infections. Urinary tract infections are basically a big uh, topic. They're very common in PKD. Uh, most PKD patients during their lifetime would get at least one episode, whether it's going to be a bladder infection, a, a true uh, kidney infection with pyelonephritis, or sometimes just an individual cyst infection that be- basically behaves like, like an abscess. We can see all these uh, problems in, in PKD patients. We typically recommend uh, doing a urine culture. In all PKD patients who have symptoms of the UTI, there's going to be burning, uh, frequency, uh, fever, chills. And uh, if they have a kidney function, the difference with non-PKD patients is that the length of treatment for kidney infections should be much longer. So a typical kidney infection in PKD patients needs about four weeks minimum of antibiotics. And uh, uh, in non-PKD patients, typically two weeks is enough. Uh, and the other difference is that for non-PKD patients, we just want the antibiotic to get to the urine. Whereas here we have to think about cysts and we have to choose agents that actually penetrate into the cell, into the uh, cyst. And uh, typically, the ones that are that have very good penetration are quinolones uh, such as cipro, um, cipro Levoquin uh, uh, and uh, bactrim and uh, vancomycin. Uh, The group that is actually poor in penetrating the cyst is the class of penicillins and cephalosporins that actually have good urinary penetration, but they don't get into the cyst as well. And we should think about that, particularly when you're thinking about kidney infection or cyst infection. For bladder infection, it doesn't matter that much unless, you know, the bladder infection has been ascending to the kidneys. Chronic pain is also a very, very common problem in in post-cystic kidney disease. There is a correlation between kidney size and and pain, but the correlation is not perfect. We all have those patients who would have relatively smaller kidneys and they're hurting a lot. And I've had patients who have massively, massively enlarged kidneys and they don't have that much of pain. They may have some discomfort as far as the size, but not really painful. Um, Obviously, if the pain is very uh, severe, And chronic and daily, you know, it can affect your social job performance, your mood, your, you know, mental health. And pain management a lot of times comes to the picture. So you can go uh, from simple uh, giving some Tylenol to, you know, narcotic prescription. Now with the narcotic uh, um, issues that we have, we have to be careful about the risk of dependence and tolerance and try to use everything before that. And uh, then uh, the cyst drainage, you know, by just based by needle drainage could be used. Uh, My colleague at the the Harvard, uh, Ted Steinman, has actually developed a very um, um, predictive model that works really uh, well. If the area of the pain corresponds to a major or two major or three major cysts that are much larger than the other ones, and that's where the patient is hurting and the size is at least three to four centimeters, going after those individual cysts has actually a pretty high yield in relieving the pain. And you would know that because as soon as you put the needle in there, patients say, wow, my pain is almost 80% or 60% or 90% gone. Uh, but if the cysts are all over the place and there are too many of them and the size is kind of all over the place, usually it does not help You know, going after those individual cysts and it actually may hurt them to have more pain uh, and have you know, complications of infections and things like that. The, the more radical uh, treatment is cystroofing, uh, which is a surgical procedure. It was very commonly performed in the 80s and 90s, and we kind of backed away uh, from those because uh, we realized that it actually does not help protecting the kidney function. If anything, when you do roofing you're also removing some good tissue and the kidney function may go down. But the major, major problem with those is that if it – if he, uh, end up in a situation of non-healing and oozing uh, intra-abdominal wounds, then you get ascites, and that becomes a really complicated situation. And a lot of times, you know, you basically have to go and take the kidney out. Um, uh, So um, there are some other more invasive uh, um, uh, treatments, such as renal sympathetic denervation. Uh, That's invasive. It should be done by a group that is really familiar with that, and it should be only considered in patients who have really uh, excruciating pain that is refractory to, to the typical treatment plans that we have. Another uh, associated feature of polycystic kidney disease is actually liver cysts. Liver cysts are extremely common. If you want to just go by a presence of one cyst and look at all PKD patients, at least 75% of them would have at least one cyst at some point of their life. Most people have more than one. Uh, and if you look at the end of life, you know pretty much 90% of them have at least one, one cyst. Uh, the interesting thing about these cysts is that they don't cause liver failure. They don't cause liver cirrhosis, but they can cause, you know, mechanical compression, issues with rupture, infections. And also, you know, if the liver is extremely big, then it can actually cause malnutrition because you don't, you don't have room to eat food and you basically chronically become malnourished. Uh, There are some strategies as far as either Medications, somatostatin analogs and octreotide have shown actually a reduction of the cyst, which is moderate, uh, but they also come with the risks of in, uh, inducing diabetes. And also, you know, you have to see whether the insurance co- uh, companies will cover that drug. One of my patients just recently, you know, the insurance said we're not covering that indication. And uh, as far as the surgical options, uh, if the left uh, liver, which is the much, much smaller part of the liver, uh, is actually uh, involved and it's very big and it's pushing against the stomach, you can actually very easily resect that. And that gives people more room to eat. And I've, I've used that trick uh, in many of my patients with these situations. But then the, the larger sister roofing surgery uh, is more complicated. And again, you know, it has more um, post-op uh, um, issues as far as healing and uh, infections and, uh, and uh, scarring uh, but it can be considered as well. The next very important uh, topic is actually screening and detection and treatment of intracranial aneurysms. And I'm going to ask Michelle to go over that.
0: Thanks, Fred. I agree with you. This is really a key clinical area that uh, we need to pay attention in patients with polycystic kidney disease. And as we know, it presents in 10 to 12% of all screen PKD patients Usually it's in the 75% um, is um, these aneurysms are located in the arterial circulation. It's important to remember that these aneurysms are more important in families with histories of intracranial aneurysm. It's not only intracranial aneurysm, but also dolicoectaceous, which means an elongation dilation without really of the vessel, without an aneurysm. And that can happen in approximately 5% of cases. We need, usually to screen, uh, screening needs to be offered to those patients who are obviously symptomatic, like headache, uh, headaches, uh, positive family history of uh, stroke or cerebrovascular uh, events, high-risk jobs. The job that always comes to mind is obviously an airline pilot or pre-transplant um, or any other type of surgery. There's no question that an MRA of the brain without gadolinium is recommending as a first line screening tool. If this one is negative, there's no need to repeat it for another five to 10 years. Obviously, we need to avoid uncontrolled hypertension, smoking, heavy alcohol consumption, all kind of logical things in the management of aneurysms, as well as stimulant medications, illicit drugs, and excessive straining and bowel salva maneuver, maneuvers. The foam embolization or surgical clipping uh, is needed if the size is greater than 70 millimeters. Uh, however, uh, some patients might really be very concerned if the size is smaller and request consultation with some of our neurosurgical colleagues. Fred, do you want to maybe summarize kind of the nutritional recommendation for this population?
1: Sure. The main things based on the studies that have been done, uh, we recommend a moderate uh, protein restriction diet in ADPKD. And that's based on the MDRD study that had a um, fair number of PKD patients in that. And over long term, that's an effective uh, intervention. Uh, From the whole PKD study, we clearly linked uh, urinary sodium excretion, which basically uh, reflects your salt intake. And we know that when you're eating more salt and when you're Uh, excreting more salt in the urine, that is a risk factor for uh, kidney growth and also uh, to the drop in GFR and death and ESRD. And this is data from a HALT PKD trial. So we're really adamant about that. It could be actually a a completely new uh, way of not only treating hypertension, but also um, uh, prolonging the kidney life in polycystic kidney disease. High water, the same way that tolvaptan blocks, you know, the vasopressin effect. You know, if you drink a lot of water, you can suppress uh, uh, vasopressin. Um, we know that uh, from this single uh, study that was done. It was a relatively small study in Japan. They did not actually show a clear di- uh, difference in uh, either uh, kidney f- uh, uh, size or kidney function. Uh, but again, there were caveats with that study. It was a small study. There's a much larger study right now in Australia that's going on, and we'll have the results, hopefully, by the end of the year. Uh, caffeine in animal models of polycystic kidney disease clearly uh, fuels you know, uh, um, fluid secretion in ADPKD um, uh, and uh, increased size of the, uh, the, the kidneys. In human studies, when we looked at um, HALF-PKD and CRISP uh, retrospective uh, data of, uh, after the studies were done and we, we knew whether patients were taking caffeine or not. We did not see much of a difference between caffeine uh, uh, consumers and versus non-consumers. Um, um, caffeine clearly can still uh, worsen the uh, blood pressure. We don't recommend smoking at all, both in uh, animal models and in human studies the risk of uh, progression of uh, kidney uh, uh, kidney disease is higher in uh, smokers and uh, obesity and uh, as michelle already uh, talked about uh, from the hall PKD trial obesity and overweight being overweight is clearly associated with uh, with faster progression uh, both in the change of kidney uh, volume and uh, uh slope of the uh, the decline of the uh, kidney function so those are the the uh, the things that have been established now the ketogenic diet and time restricted fasting are very hot topics and there's some animal models that have shown that and the clinical trials that are pilot studies are ongoing so we're waiting for the results and hopefully we'll have larger trials to go over the final results of those interventions as a summary uh take-home message, what would you recommend if I wanted to point out five strategies for PKD patients? What would be the take-home message to take care of these patients?
0: Yeah, thank you, Fred. I, I, you know, I think a lot of the key treatment areas have, been, have had an impact in our PKD patient population as we know that the longevity of this patient is increasing steadily with more than 10 years over the last 40 years. If you would ask me, I think hypertension is probably the most common and treatable associated complication in PKD. We need to do our best to lower to a systolic blood pressure of 110 in those with a GFR greater than 60, and at least a systolic blood pressure of 130 if not 120 in those who have more advanced polycystic kidney disease. We need to screen and treat for intracranial aneurysm. I cannot stress this more, as this could be a devastating complication in patients with polycystic kidney disease, especially in those who have a family history of aneurysm. We need to remember that the vasopressin receptor antagonist olbaptin should be considered in all patients at high risk of progression, uh, because it's the only modifying drug that has been really approved by the FDA. And as you mentioned, we will talk about the dietary interventions, low salt, protein restriction, high water intake, as well as avoiding cigarette smoking in this population as other kind of countercurrent measures uh, to improve the outcomes of PKD patients.
1: Thank you very much, Michelle, for uh, uh, all your help and input uh, in this uh, presentation. I hope that this webcast has been useful for the audience.
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Access Medical Education and Novus Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to
1: reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.